Well, let's begin. We're coming back this morning for the first time to our studies in the Pauline epistles. We were occupied with other matters over the summer months, studying the biblical teaching of covenant. And um, we come back to the Pauline letters. And if I asked you where we left off, I wonder if anybody would remember. I know I had to look it up. But it was Romans chapter 8. And we completed Romans 8, and I believe at least verse 3, perhaps verse 4. And um, what I thought I'd do this morning is I'd catch us up to speed by giving you something of a basic review. Fully aware that not everybody's here every Sunday to hear every one of these messages. Um, I think it's important to see the drift of the letter, to see the not just the, the parts, but to see the whole. Uh, we need to see the parts, yes, but we need to see that they're all part of a, um, a great story that uh, Paul is uh, telling, uh, a great uh, picture that he's painting in this book. And um, we need to come back and uh, see the big picture. So that's what we're going to do just a little bit this morning. Uh, I put down on the blackboard uh, uh, that this review in Romans would deal with these um, five things. Now, I'm going to tell you, this probably is not going to be in order. Probably we're going to be... intermingling a lot of this stuff because a lot of this stuff is related and so I don't know know that I'm able to pause myself and say well I'm going to save that for later on when it might have its more proper uh, um, disclosure to you so just just note that we're probably not going to take this in order I basically put this on here on the board here as a reminder to me of the basic material I I designed to cover this morning perhaps to help for you in terms of remembering some of the things that we were doing this morning. So um, I couldn't come up with a P for the first one. You notice all the other ones are P's. Problem, provision, place, and power. Um, nature, not even um, not even Merriam-Webster's thesaurus could help me out on that one. That would have anything that would be comparable to what I'm after. Uh, a genre is really what I'm after. The nature of, the, of this piece of, of, of literature that we find in our Bibles Again, the Bible is a book that has many different kinds of compositions, many different kinds of writings, many different kinds of what's called genres. And what we're dealing here with the book of Romans, and sometimes, though we know this, sometimes we tend to forget it. Because many times our concern in Bible study is not to so much key in on what was Paul's concern when he sat down to write this this book. We're concerned with ourselves. We're concerned with our own interests, our own concerns. And we like to come to Scripture to answer our problems and maybe not to be thinking too much about what their problems were. What were their interests and concerns that led the biblical writers to write the things that they wrote? Well, the answer to the question of the nature of the book is it's a letter. And it's a church letter. It's a letter written to a church, an assembly of people in the imperial city of Rome, It is a letter that is justly called Paul's magnum opus. That's a bit of Latin that simply means his great work. Paul's great work is the book of Romans. It's put at the front 
of his corpus or the body of his letters. Not so much because it is his magnum opus. Uh, that's something we, we consider it to be. Um, it's not because the early church or the people that compiled the Bible in the way that they did were thinking, well, Roman must come first in priority because it's the greatest one that Paul ever wrote. No, they were thinking in terms of Paul. This is the longest letter that Paul ever wrote. The letters of the uh, of, of Paul are arranged by primarily in terms of length. So Romans gets pride of place and followed by 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the rest, just in terms of how large a book it was that he wrote. So that's why you, you come up with Philemon at the end, which is just one chapter. So that's how the books are arranged. But the book of Romans is justly called his great work. And that's because, again, people have looked at it and they said, oh, this really is something that really accords with what I'm concerned about. Um, some people who are concerned with the gospel and its spread, which should be all Christians, but uh, if you come to the Bible with that concern principally in your mind, if it's not so much open my eyes that I might see wonderful things out of your law, but Lord, how can I use this book you've given me to win the lost or to evangelize? Well, you might come to the book of Romans with a different mindset. A lot of people do that. And they look at the book of Romans as a manual for evangelism. And so they come up with systems of evangelism from the book of Romans, which they think is the way, the way, to preach the gospel, the Romans road, or its many different variations. Um, and I would tell you that it was never on Paul's mind. When he sat down and wrote the book of Romans, it was never on his mind to say, well, how can I give to the church in future years something of a road for evangelism, something of a tract upon which the gospel can be presented to the lost? I mean, we talk about that, and it seems absurd that we would think this is what the book's about, but yet the way it's used, that's how it's used. More close to home, of course, in our own reform circles, the Book of Romans becomes something of a mini-systematic theology. Paul would have written a three-volume one <laughs> if he had more time, but he was a busy missionary apostle, so instead of giving a three-volume systematic theology, he gives us this mini-systematic theology just contained in these 16 chapters. Well, bzz, bzz, wrong. It's not, uh, and it, it's not a systematic theology. Now, Paul is a systematic thinker in many ways, although sometimes he takes flights of fancy in different directions, and he gets a thought, and he moves from that one thought to another thought, and comes back to it later. But in the main, of course, he was a, a, a brilliant mind and a systematic thinker. But that was not his main concern. He was not to leave a legacy to the church of the systematization of biblical truth. Although we can find you know, the doctrine of creation, you can find something of the doctrine of God, you can find something of the doctrine of sin, and you can find something of the doctrine of grace and salvation. You can find all those doctrines in the, in the Book of Romans, but you can find those doctrines elsewhere as well. It wasn't intended to be a systematic theology. It was intended to be a church letter. Now, sometimes I tell you when you read a book of the Bible... Um, you can cheat a little bit. I know you read Agatha Christie, don't go to the end to find out who did it because she usually presents something that's such a, such a change of direction in such a masterful way she, that she puts together the plot. You really want to get surprised. I know many times I've read um, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, one of her first mystery novels and I, I still get surprised when I come to the end and find out it was the author, the narrator, who did the murder. Who ever thought to do that? Well, Agatha Christie did. So, I'm sorry? I don't understand. He gave it away for 
Oh, I gave it away. I gave it away. I'm sorry. I gave it away. Go read it anyway, because I still get surprised. I still do. I still get surprised. Um, anyway, um, it's okay to go to the end of the Bible and see where it ends up. Because generally speaking, you're going to find uh, there's some... That's where things tend to head. We'll see it this morning when we look at the Gospel of John in chapter 20. John gives at the end the reason for which he wrote the book. And you ought to read, you know, in the light of, of the end. And um, I think it's just as important as the first chapter is for setting the stage. Uh, the last chapter is also important in terms of seeing where he's heading. Well, uh, Paul recapitulates in the final verses much that's here in chapter 1. I won't go into that with you now. But we'll tell you before he gets there, you know what he does? He greets some 16, maybe it's more. He greets a whole lot of folks by name who are part of the church at Rome. Now let me ask you something. Do you think, since he did that at the end, that those people were on his mind when he began the letter? That his concern is not just to expostulate upon doctrine or to give some program for church work, but these people, many of whom he knew, Reports of, of whom he had heard about. He knew what their struggles were, their problems were, their difficulties were. He knew something, although he'd never been to Rome, of the inner workings of the church just because uh, he knew all those folks. And they're in his mind when he sits down to write the letter. And so we should never extract the letters from their historic context. Sad to say, we don't know all the details about what went on in the church in Rome. Some of it is things we have to just uh, try to pick up from uh, things we read through, through the letter and also things we read in other parts of Scripture. Uh, and I do think we can have a reasonable sense of what's happening at the church of Rome simply because there's things in the book that are, are, are not found elsewhere. They're not found in other writings of Paul. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church, doesn't say anything about to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says that twice to the church at Rome, both in terms of the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and judgment to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says nothing in the other letters about, for there is no distinction, for there is no distinction. But he says that twice in this letter, both in terms of there's no distinction in terms of our being sinners, before God, and there's no distinction in the way of salvation. And so Paul wants to seemingly take Jew and Gentile and say, whatever it is that it may, would make you think there's distinction, whatever it is that might you think may, may, may make you think, oh, well, you got first in this deal, and and either you're boasting in it, or else. Um, others are looking to tear you down and say, well, you may be first in terms of his history, but man, your people rejected Jesus, so man, you know, that's, that's a big negative. And Paul's addressing all those things. He's addressing the story of Israel in chapters 9 to 11. He's, he's drawing distinctions that exist between practices about keeping days and not keeping days, keeping um, certain dietary practices and not keeping certain dietary practices in chapters 14 and 15. Well, there's obviously tension going on between these people. Well, who has tensions between these things? Well, it's Jew and Gentile. It's Jew and Gentile. And he, he has long statements concerning this matter of the law and the place of the law. And he makes statements about the law in terms of the Jew boasts in the law. The Jew is boasting in the law. I think that it enters into some kind of the tensions that might exist. You have a certain group of people that say, well, we're the people of the law. 
God gave us the law. And they're boasting in the law as if we were something as a result of that. And Paul has to deal with that issue of ethnic pride that Jews might have, or it might have to do with the fact that Gentiles are saying, well, you're Christ rejectors, so we just diminish the favor and priority that God gave to Israel. So Paul's looking to maintain a certain priority that Israel does possess, but in such a way as it never leads to pride or boasting, and in such a way that it's recognized by the Gentiles in their midst, but yet both Jew and Gentile realize whatever the priority of Israel possessed in terms of the law, in terms of the covenants, in terms of the worship, in terms of the glory, all those things that Paul mentions in chapter 9. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, he says in chapter 3 and verse 1. And so these aspects of advantage that the Jews did possess, that those advantages are nothing if it doesn't lead you to Christ. Because though these advantages are there, they're not the ultimate things. They might say they're the penultimate things, they're the things that lead up or prefigure or prophesy concerning the ultimate thing, which is Christ himself and his coming. And so I think you have all that going on. Tensions in the congregation over this ethnic division, and it makes sense that we would understand the letter in that way. Because when you read the book of Acts, you will realize that there were people in Rome that were there on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the Pentecostal sermon and the people gathering there for the, for, for the feast were from all these different places in the Roman Empire. And one of the places he mentions clearly is Rome. There were, there were Jews and God-fearers from the imperial city present in Jerusalem when Peter preached his Pentecostal sermon and 3,000 souls got saved. You think any Romans got saved? <laughs> I would probably think they did. And Again, you don't read about an apostle being in Rome. Paul had never been there, and in spite of what Roman Catholicism would tend to, 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 to teach, uh, Peter, uh, had, if he was there at all, it was late in life. It was late in life. It was never early on. No apostle founded the church. The church was probably founded by those God-fearers and Jews that went to, Pente- went to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost and were heard, heard Peter's sermon, were pricked in their hearts, what shall we do? They came to faith, they went back to Rome, and they started to meet. So if that's the nucleus, of, that's the beginning of the church, that's the origin, the roots of the church, you would probably think that the, 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 the complexion of the church, the, the composition of the church, at that point was mostly Jewish, wouldn't, wouldn't you think? Again, it was hard for some of the Jews in Jerusalem to begin to preach the gospel to Gentiles. That uh, took uh, dis- that took persecution to spread them out, and they went to places. And at once, one time, they were only speaking to the Jews, and then in Antioch, they began to preach the word of God to to the Gentiles also. Um, and so, I don't think in Rome you would have had an aggressive ministry to the Gentiles just yet. It would have been Jews. There would have been Gentiles that came to faith and joined them as there were God-fearers who came to faith and joined them and were not required to be circumcised. But then you have an occurrence that takes place in, recorded in chapter 18 uh, that tells us that the emperor, I believe it was Claudius at that time, um, he made a decree that all the Jews should depart from Rome. And, and it's an interesting thing that the church, uh, not a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius, Suetonius, Heard a southern preacher once, and he would always say, Sweetonius. 
like he's a sweet Tonius. Uh, sweet Tonius <laughs> was a Roman historian, and uh, one of the things he wrote, he, he said that there was a disturbance among the Jews about the subject of Crestus. That's actually in his writings, this Roman historian, Crestus. Well, it's likely that Christodius got it wrong, and it wasn't the Jews having this argument or division or conflict over Crestus, but Christos. He just got the spelling wrong. It was about Christ. It was about Jesus. It was about the reality that Christians in Rome were probably evangelizing their fellow Jews, and there was troubles and conflicts that came, and the emperor just said, pox on both your houses, you're out of here. And he evicted them from the imperial city. Now, the Christians weren't exempt from that, so what's going to happen? Well, if um, the decree came that all the Gentiles were to leave Pinebush, I'd be here alone, <laughs> right? I'd be here by myself. But in Rome, it would have been that the church would have been depleted largely of their leadership, I would think. And so what happens? Well, you have a bunch of Gentiles that remain, and a new bunch of leaders get rise up from, from that group. And then we read that uh, well, another emperor took over. Was it, I don't remember. I think it was Tiberius is the next one. And he says the Jews can come, come back. Think of that. The former leaders, the former people that were in charge of the church, they were the leaders, the teachers, the elders of the church. They've been evicted. Um, Aquila and Priscilla go to Corinth. They meet Paul. Um, they're active, they're involved in other places and other churches, and now they're allowed to come back to the city. Cole and Priscilla came back. Well, uh, how were they welcomed? Were they welcomed with open arms? Well, maybe, maybe the new leaders said, oh, yeah, well, it's nice to see you back, but, uh, you know, don't expect you to preach all the, all, all, all the, the meetings. There might be some tension that goes on there. And I think that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the fact that Jews and Gentiles having different backgrounds, having different um, cultures, having different uh, likes and dislikes, different practices, like keeping days or not keeping days, eating meats or not eating meats, um, that these were things that provided the tension that Paul is now looking to address. And he's looking to address it by the fact of leveling everybody. Everybody is equal in sin, no distinction. Everybody is equal in grace. We're all being justified by the same faith and the same Christ who has made a propitiation for our sins and there's no distinction. And he's looking to do it in such a way that he would say to the Jews, yes, you have these advantages, but don't get proud over it. And he's looking to say to the Gentiles, uh, yeah, you're right, Jesus is the principle issue and concern, but, but don't exclude the Old Testament, man. You, know, you can't do that. Everything's based and founded and rooted in the Old Testament, and that's the gift that these Jews have given to you Gentiles. So um, you should have a, a real love for them and a real appreciation for them, a real thankfulness to God for them that this gospel came from Jerusalem. This gospel came from the hotbed of, of Judaism and uh, came to be a blessing to the nation. So any and every kind of anti-Semitism should be excluded. Any and every kind of ethnic division should be excluded. And there should be the pursuit of love and unity that Paul addresses in chapters 12 and other passages because this group of people are bound together in, in, in one, one, by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, to borrow the language, of course, of the Ephesian letter. It, that's what Paul's arguing for. And... Um, 
So it's a it's a church letter. Any questions about that? Okay. Well, well secondly, uh, look at that. I told you it's, it's not going to be it's not going to be clear divisions here because the problem addresses this, these Jew and Gentile relations. I covered that. Okay. Um, and then, of course, he moves into the whole question of the unity of God's people in terms of a common standing before God. We've all been received by God. And we've all been made right with God. We've all been justified. We've all been made righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the first five chapters, that's Paul's principal assertion. This is the first few chapters. Leveled everybody in sin. uh, And and that's there too. I just don't have time to go into it this morning. But those latter chapters are addressing the fact that sinners are made right with God through the work of Christ, through faith in Christ, and through nothing else. Nothing else will suffice. And again, of course, the problem with the Jew-Gentile relations is, well, what's the place of the law within that mix? Um, we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, many, many assertions of the basis of our standing with God is not in ourselves, is not in anything that we do. It's not in works of righteousness that we ourselves have wrought. It's in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And, and Paul ends that whole discussion. I won't go into it in detail. We really have done this. but And you can read it. And it's, it's a glorious treatment of the whole subject of how we stand before God. Paul resolves it into the issue of Two, 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 two people in history, Adam and, and, and Jesus, Adam and Jesus, that through one man, sin entered into the world, death through sin, death passed on all men, for that all have sinned. It's through the disobedience of Adam that all are under condemnation. It's through the sin of one man that um, unrighteousness and judgment comes. And through the obedience of the other man, the second man, uh, Adam was a type of the of the true, the type of of. I'm sorry, that's 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 the temple, that's the tabernacle in Hebrews, the type of the true. But he's a type of him who was to come. I think is Paul's language in Romans chapter five. He's the type of him who was to come. Um, and as God dealt with the human race in Adam through sin, so He addresses the plight of the human race in sin in the one man, Christ Jesus, His obedience brings righteousness, brings justification, brings life. And then he makes a very important, significant statement. And here we're going to address this, the place of the law. He says in chapter 5, verse 20, Now the law came in. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And again, it's been a while since we're in chapter 5. I wanted to go back. I wanted to look at the original. Because I remember the sermons of of, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones on the subject. And um, I believe it's at this passage he would translate this. uh, Now the law came in not on the main line. Not on the main line. What does that mean? The law didn't come in on the main line. Well, there is this main line that leads to salvation and life. 
that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the law comes in, not on the main line, it's a later addition, and in fact it doesn't add anything to what the grace of the gospel brings. The life and salvation that Christ brings is sufficient. The law has its use and its purpose, but it doesn't add anything to the redemption you have in Christ Jesus. And I think the way to conceive of it, a really good way to conceive of it, is to again go back to Israel's experience when they were brought out of Egypt. Where did they get the law? Well, they didn't get the law at Mount Sinai. I'm sorry, at Mount Zion. They didn't get the law within the land of promise. There was a main line out of Egypt across the Sea of Reeds that would have brought them into the Sinai Peninsula. And you look at it on the map in your Bible, the main line would have been straight up into the Holy Land. That's not what God does. He doesn't send them on the main line. There's a reason that's given in the book of Exodus. I think it was because of they weren't prepared for war yet. And so God was going to take them off of the main line. Again, the promise was the land, right? It was the promised land. He remembered his covenant with Abraham. He remembered his promise of the land. Uh, chapter 15 of Genesis said that uh, there would be strangers in, 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 in a foreign land. They would be held in captivity. And then God would bring them back. That's God's end. That's God's end. And what he did when he redeemed them out of Egyptian bondage was, an, was an, a redemption that was complete and full. They were out of Egypt. They were out of bondage. They were out of servitude. The fact that God took them off the main line and made a right turn and then another right turn and they're heading south down to Mount Sinai. They took that trip all the way down to Mount Sinai. There was nothing that happened at Sinai that made them more free. There was nothing that happened at Mount Sinai that liberated them further. They were liberated. God said, I've taken you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. But then he says, if you obey my law, you will be a people unto me. You'll be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. The law was given, but it wasn't given to make them freer. It was given to regulate their life in the land. It was given for the purposes not of redeeming them, or saving them, or rescuing them, their rescue was complete and entire and full. When God brought ten plagues upon the Egyptian nation, when he destroyed the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea, they were liberated, they were free, they were redeemed. That great act of redemption was complete and it was full. The law couldn't make them freer. What the law did, as soon as the law begins to be given to Israel... It increases their transgressions or their trespasses because it makes them responsible for things that maybe they weren't responsible to do prior to that. When God says you have a law now with respect to the redemption of the firstborn, well, who would ever thought of redeeming your firstborn? Well, the firstborn belongs to God. That's what the law says. The law says you'd have to give sacrifices to redeem the firstborn. If you didn't do it, you know what? You were a transgressor. The law came and increased the transgressions. The law said you have to tie the, you know, of, of your of your grain and the, the increase, or you have to, you know, when you're in the. And again, all of that was for the purposes of how they do live their lives before God in the land that God was bringing them to. 
And so the farmer was told, you can't, uh, you know, you can't uh, harvest the, the ends of your field, the, the, the corners of your field. That's for the, uh, the gleanings. That's all for the poor and, and, and the alien. Yeah, not outer space aliens. People from other countries that are coming through your land, that's for them. The land's not yours. The land belongs to God. And not to do that would have been to, would have been to sin. The law increases transgression. But it doesn't make you freer. And it's really the same thing with respect to the Christian gospel. Paul goes into chapter 6 and again, I don't know that it's as clear as I've already expressed to some of you who come Wednesday nights how I think the account of the Exodus really undergirds Hebrews. But I think there's an extent to which there's a bit of undergirding of Paul's argument if you think of this picture of God taking them off of the main line, bringing them down to Sinai, giving them a law. And that Christian salvation entails a similar journey out of bondage, out of slavery, out of captivity, into freedom. That's certainly the figure he gives at the end of chapter 6. You are made freed from sin, you become servants to God, you have your end unto sanctification, and the end is eternal life. There's a whole picture of slavery. Do you not know to whom you give your members as servants to obedience, as servants you are to whom you obey, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness? There's a question of who, who do you, you serve somebody, who do you serve? Or what you give your members to, what you give your eyes to, what you give your ears to, what you give your hands to, what you give your feet to, what you practically do in the acts that you do in the body demonstrates who you serve. Demonstrates who you serve. Or you who once were the servants of sin have now been freed from slavery. And so I think there's something of an Exodus picture there. There may even be something of an Exodus picture in the fact that Paul uses in chapter 6 the image of baptism. And I think that this may be so. Because again, this letter was written after 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses the experience of the nation of Israel having been rescued from Egyptian bondage, and he says that they were baptized unto Moses in the water and in the sea. I mean, in the cloud, in the cloud and the sea. So, God's presence, I guess in the cloud, the, the fact that they came through the sea by divine power, God caused the sea to divide, let his people through, uh, that cemented Moses' leadership. And they became identified with Moses as their leader. Under God, of course, whose presence brought their deliverance and brought their salvation. And, and so Jews might have thought themselves, when they thought of the Old Testament, they thought of their identity as, as, as Israel, as God's people, that they had this relationship to Moses that it kind of makes the law really, really important. But you see, it's in this deliverance they were made, the followers of Moses, or cemented their relationship to Moses. Whatever came later, that was already done passing through the sea. Well, there's a sense in which in baptism, that's Christian baptism, not baptism with Israel experience in 1 Corinthians 10, but what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 6, he says, do you not know that all who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says there's been an experience that you've had that's kind of analogous 
to Egyptian redemption or salvation in Jesus. But it's not that you went through a sea, but it's you went through an ordinance that points to the reality of participation in Christ by faith. Of the fact that you have the blessings of Christ's redemption received by faith as pictured in baptism. And so I think you might have some Old Testament themes running through Paul's experience saying you Christians, Jew and Gentile together, you constitute a new Israel you constitute a people that have experienced a new redemption, but hasn't yoked you to Moses, it's yoked you to Jesus, the Jesus who died for your sins, who was raised for your justification. That's the point of your identification, it is with Him. And the main line leads to glory. It leads to the glorification He's going to speak about in Romans chapter 8. It's going to lead to the new creation, as the creation groans under its bondage and will find its liberation along with the redemption of our bodies uh, that he speaks about in chapter 8. It's really all leading there. And whatever we do about law, it's not on the main line. It doesn't add to your salvation. It doesn't do a thing to affect any ability to get justified or to get holy or righteous or obedient there is no power in the law and so I put here with respect to the place of the law it's not only the question of our justification that's in the first five chapters it's also the question of our lives before God that we who died to sin will no longer live therein how do you get to the place where you are able to honor God serve God, be free from sin, to be slaves to God, to have our fruit unto holiness, the end eternal life. Well, nothing is going to happen through law that's going to get you there. Nothing. Nothing. All the instruction about the law, all the sermons on the Ten Commandments, all of the reading of the statements of the Westminster Confession of Faith, what does this commandment enjoin, what does this commandment forbid, and we get our consciences highly regulated to all the things the law demands. I don't have a problem with that. But don't think it's going to make you holy. You can read all the expositions of the law, and it's not going to make you obedient to God. In fact, it's probably going to make you feel a lot more guilty than you presently feel. Because the reality is, you're not going to, you're not going to measure up. You know, you say the law is a mirror. It shows us ourselves. How, many, how often in the day do you look in the mirror? People who look in the mirror all the time, we say they're kind of vain. We think that's a character flaw. We're not supposed to be looking at ourselves in the mirror anymore than in the Christian life we're to be looking at ourselves or we're to be looking at how we look in the mirror of the law. Hebrews 12 tells us where we're to be looking. Putting aside every weight, the sin that so easily besets us. Run with endurance the race that's set before us, not looking at yourself, but looking at Jesus. Look at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Our faith is directed to Christ. Our salvation is bound up in Him. We participate, we participate in the blessings that He has brought. And Paul is addressing in chapter 7 into chapter 8 this simple fact. Law unables. 
I had not known sin, uh, sin unless the law had said you shall not covet. Okay, I came to see. I'm a coveter. But I think in light of what Paul's life was and coming to Jesus, it was the fact that he coveted ambition, he, uh, prominence. He was the, uh, an up-and-coming star in the Jewish religion. He made all this advancement as a rabbi. He had all these distinctions. And then he saw the only thing that all those distinctions brought him was that he was persecuting the people of the Lord he met, he, whom, who he met on the road to Damascus. What did that bring him? It brought him to be at enmity with the enthroned one, with the God of Israel, whom he thought he served but didn't, whom he opposed and whose people he persecuted. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was this covetous ambition after prominence and glory that Paul said he came to see in that law. When he saw that law, believe it or not, I think through seeing Christ. I don't think it was just that law in and of itself, because Paul didn't think he was a coveter. As he didn't think he was guilty of any of the other commandments. He thought himself before the law to be perfect. In Philippians 3, he saw himself to be a coveter as he saw himself in the face of Christ. The same thing that I think that Isaiah experienced when in the vision of chapter 6 of Isaiah he says, Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips because I've had my head in depth in study about the law. It's not how it happened. He came to the realization he was a man of unclean lips and dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It was the fruit of seeing the enthroned one whom John says Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him he saw the glory of the enthroned Christ just like Paul did and he spoke of him and he saw his sin but not just by mulling over sin it's not just by being under ministry that was top heavy on the subject of you people really have to know the reality of sin and its gravity and its man you see Jesus and you know how grave sin is I tell you, my experience as a Christian is all the efforts I made to understand more and more what the law required and the law demanded never made me a better Christian. It never did. It just never did. But somehow looking at Christ, looking at the reality of who God is in Christ, that's the engine that gets you going. That's the engine that moves your heart, that brings you to, to desire to serve and honor and bless and praise and worship the living and the true God. So, at the end of the story, the Lord unables. Paul said, I had no sin, the law said you should not covet, but didn't make him stop to be a coveter. He uses this analogy of marriage. We were married to the law. That's a great, that's a great uh, partnership in it. Would you love to be married to the law? It's like being married to the husband. <laughs> the wife says, uh, honey, honey can, uh, I can't open this jar. Can you help me? The law says, help you? That's what I'm here for. I'm not here to help you. Open that jar. <laughs> the law makes demands, but it never gets up to help you. Imagine being married to someone like that. I fear some, some have been. <laughs> but, but a husband is to be helping his wife, right? Nourishing and cherishing her, yeah, loving her as Christ loved the church, helping her, being a 
Jesus sees be a helpmeet for him. He has many areas where his larger upper body strength should be able to open up the pickle jar. If not, well, a guy's simple thing is to use a can opener <laughs> to just pull up the edges until <laughs> it pops. That's the way to do it. But the point of it is that when we die to the law and are married to another, which is the imagery that Paul uses in Romans 7, we have a new husband who says, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. That's what I do. That's what Jesus does. He's our savior. He's our rescuer. He's our helper. He's our encourager. He's our strength. He's the one who is empowering us to live and serve to the honor and the glory of God. So the law is an does not enable it unables and so Paul comes to that end where we really left off last time which is in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4 the end of this discussion about the law and again we, we, we have all this question is, is the picture that of a Christian or a non-Christian it's really a question of where we stand with the law that's really the issue that's involved here and Christians need to understand that with respect to the law, you're not going to get any help with salvation. The unbeliever needs to understand with the law, you're not going to get any help for salvation. The law is not a saving instrument. It was never given to save. Israel's salvation took place before they got to Sinai. Our salvation took place in Christ. And it needs no additions. Now the law was given for instruction. The law was given to regulate the lives of Israel as a redeemed people, as a saved people, as a rescued people, as a covenant people, when they got to the land of Canaan. But I'm going to back up a minute. And this might sound heretical, but I'm going to try not to be heretical. I'm going to try to be biblical about this that the way in which Christians tend to conceive of the law, even as a guide to living, which it is, I think it's misunderstood because we don't see the law in its fuller context. That, number one, law, the Greek word for namos, is used in many different ways. But in ways that address the subject of our view of law in terms of obedience and in terms of serving God who speaks commandments, who speaks law to us. Um, that's a translation of a Hebrew word at that point that means it's the word Torah. The Torah. Sometimes the Torah refers to the five books of Moses but it, oftentimes it refers to the law of commandments but the meaning of the word itself is instruction. It's instruction. So that all of God's word is really Torah. And so when the first psalm says that the blessed man meditates on the Torah, meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, it's not saying meditates on the Ten Commandments. It's saying he meditates upon all the instruction that God has given in his word. The totality of instruction. And then when you look at the statements that are in the word of God, in the Old Testament itself, with respect to the law and the commandments and instruction, there's lots of ways that God teaches his people that's not just 
the Ten Commandments. And again, I don't want to say just the Ten Commandments in any way to diminish them, because I think they're an important part of biblical instruction, but they're not the totality of biblical instruction. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Here's a statement that speaks to the issue of what it is that God requires of the people whom he redeems, the people whom he enters into covenant with, the people whom he brings to himself. There's several of these statements in the scriptures. What does God require of me? What does God require of me? And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? This is Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. What does Yahweh your God require of you? That's a great question. What is required of you? Well, in no place does it say, just study the Ten Commandments so you get the full picture. <laughs> no way is that said. Look at what it does say. It gives actually five things here that has to do with God's requirements. The first thing has to do with the fear of God. The fear of God. It's an attitude and a disposition of religious reverence in the presence of God. That we bow, we worship, we engage in acts of piety such as prayer. Even fasting, Jesus speaks of. That he do, be careful not to do your righteousnesses before men to be seen of men. And those are acts of piety, of giving to others and fasting and praying. That those things are to be done before God with religious commitment to Him, devotion to Him, a heart that's bent towards Him. You can be doing all the commandments in the world and not doing it in the right way because you don't fear God. You might fear hell. You might fear punishment. You might fear, well, what if the community finds out? You might have lots of things you fear. But if it's not out of fear of God, it's not what God requires. God requires His fear. And then it says, Secondly, to walk in all his ways. The ways of God. The ways of God. That word for ways, sometimes it's translated paths. It has to do with the ways that God deals with other people. All the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. All the ways of the Lord are his covenant commitment, his faithfulness, his, his love that sticks with you to the end. <laughs> and so we see in God's ways, God's paths, the things God does, we learn of who God is. So that love is defi defined by His actions. We love because He first loved us. Our love is reciprocal. Be servants of God as beloved children and walk in the love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. We're to be images of God, who follow God, who walk in the paths that God has set, not only set out to us in His Word, but that God Himself has demonstrated in the love with which He's demonstrated in His care and concern for Israel to redeem her from bondage, to bring her into the land of promise, to be faithful to His promises to their fathers, to be with them, never to forsake them. Those are God's ways. And then at the center of these five things, and I always point out that when you have odd numbers, it's always the center that seems to me to be the principal thing around which everything else revolves. 
is to love him. Simply to love him. It's the shortest statement, but yet the most full. Earlier on, he said that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we're called to love God. To love God. And again, you can be doing commandment keeping for all kinds of reasons that's not rooted in loving God. And then to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul is to have a servant's disposition. Is to have a disposition that says, here I am Lord, use me, send me, do with me what you will, what will you have me to do? See, again, this is what God requires of us. And you think of studying the Ten Commandments all, all day, for many days, and, and never really light upon these other elements that are all part of our relationship to the God, of the, the God of our salvation. It's just a fuller picture. You have other pictures as well. You have in the book of, um, um, the book of Micah, uh, another statement about what it is that God what does God require of you to give your firstborn for the salvation of your soul he says no what God requires of you is to seek justice to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God and I say all this because you know, we don't want to be gospel lawyers. <laughs> we, 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 we want to be gospel-centered people who recognize that law has a place and purpose. It's there in this passage. Keep all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's the last one, interestingly enough. That's the last one. They must say it's not important. It's part of what God requires. But I'm just saying there is this fuller picture. Because if we don't see the fuller picture, we're going to really get into error at many points. Let me point out just a couple of things. This is something I was thinking about. Uh, I'm, beginning, I'm beginning a renewed study in Matthew's Gospel. I'm reading a commentary that's just so blessed and so edifying and just so helpful and just so thought-provoking. And I read commentaries for the sake, not of saying, okay, uh, he said this or he said that. and he's, no, To get my mind working, to get me to be thinking about biblical issues. And one of the things that's always interested me is how in the, in the Gospel um, of Matthew, in chapter 1, when uh, Joseph discovers that this woman he's betrothed to is with child. And as the normal human being, you find someone with child, well, there's someone who she conceived that child with, and Joseph knows it wasn't him. It wasn't him. Well, if we were only to think in terms of the law, what Israel's law required of Joseph to do is to bring this to the attention to the elders, to determine whether there were people with an earshot of the fact that she had sex with somebody that wasn't her husband, and to say, well, she's in the city, so she, no one heard it, so she didn't cry out, so she's guilty. Stoner. Stoner. That would have been in the end. But that's not what Joseph did. And the scripture, interestingly enough, he says that Joseph being a righteous man, being a righteous man, and not wanting to put her up to, to shame in a shame culture, sought to put her away privately. He didn't want to make it a big issue. He didn't want to make it a 
a, a public issue. He didn't want to put it on public display. And God said that was righteous. That was righteous. He said, wait a minute, that's disobedient. He should have done the other. Uh, again, I think when we look at law and just see it on paper, and not see it as it really is in, in human life and, and relations, when law is not governed by these other considerations, the fear of God, service to God, how about biblical wisdom? Biblical wisdom. There may be other situations and circumstances where that would not be what would be ultimately first in the best interests of this woman, the best interests of the family, the best interests of whatever else. So Joseph wasn't so cleaving to the law because he understood that Israel's law in the Old Testament, and here's where you know you want an argument against theonomists. The theonomists are these people that say that the Old Testament law was just the best law possible for anybody ever to live unto, uh, under. And, and, and Christians need to get political power. We need to be able to govern, and we'll govern by means of the Old Testament law. That means every adulterer should be stoned. Let me just say that was a law that was given to a people in a given place at a given time and has not made the perpetual rules for all living in all places and at all times. God had his reasons when dealing with the nation of Israel to be very strict on some of these points because he had to make public people aware that his word was meant to be obeyed. This was serious stuff. You walked in God's fear. A lot of it was for the sake of other people in the community, taking note and fear. That's why you discipline uh, in, in the church, that others would fear, is one of the passages in the book of Timothy. So God had his purposes. It doesn't mean we're to carry out the law with that kind of rigor. Apparently Joseph did not. And the Holy Spirit said, righteous man. Joseph being a righteous man and not wanting to put her to a public, public shame. It's in the Bible. I didn't put it there. It's in the Bible. So, evidently, and on all points, is a zeal for every detail um, required. And then you go on in Matthew's Gospel, and what do you see? Well, you see the Pharisees getting tremendously upset at Jesus because he's doing these healings all on the wrong day. And, and on two occasions, Jesus says something significant. This whole matter of moral teaching and moral instruction. And he doesn't go to the law. He goes to Hosea. Hosea 6 and verse 6. He says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. And I think in the context, what Jesus is saying it's more important what you give than what you give up. It's more important what you give than what you give up. You say, oh, it's a a Sabbath day. I'm going to sacrifice any mercy or doing good to a neighbor. I don't have to do anything when I see a need that's there, even though they're probably going to take their their animal that fell into a a pit out on the, the Sabbath day. They'll make their own exceptions, but for some reason they the, the point is it's always right to give it's always right to show mercy it's always right to image 
the God of mercy in all of your actions and activities. So when you come into a situation and it's a question of showing mercy or coming to say, well, well, where in the law does it regulate what I'm supposed to do right here? And looking at all of the details of the case law of the Old Testament. Someone gave me a book last week, and with this I'm going to close. It's, first of all, it was Rush Dooney's book on the Institutes of Biblical Law. If you don't know who Rush Dooney is, well and good, don't learn. But he gave me this book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, and then a, a book by a guy named Gary North. I, I knew Gary North worshiping at Trinity years ago, and Gary North wrote even a bigger book on what he calls The Case Laws of Exodus, the book of Exodus. And first of all, I'm exhausted looking at those books. <laughs> they gave me the books, so I'm intending to, to, to do some reading it eventually. But what, who would ever have thunk to do such an exercise as that? To try to nail down every single case of situations and circumstances and how there's something in the Old Testament case law found in Exodus. Not the Ten Commandments, but all those other commandments about if this happens, then you do this. And if this happens, then you do that. We're to be regulated by case law. I'll simplify things. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is terrible. But there's still something to be said in this context. Not in every context, but what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Those are the questions we should be asking. Is this the merciful thing? I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. It's always right to do good. It's always right to give. And not necessarily to give up. It's not what you sacrifice, it's what you give. Well, with that, I'll conclude our review. And um, I'll take some of these remarks integrated a little bit in Romans chapter 8 because I think it does apply. But I hope this has been helpful doing this review of what's in the book of Romans. And God willing, next week we'll get ready to go back into Romans chapter 8. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful once more for your word and the fullness of it. and Lord, we, we confess that so much about Scripture we are not aware of and ignorant of, and we've not plumbed its depths in any degree as much as we should. But Lord, we thank you for every bit of insight and understanding you're pleased to unveil to us, and we cry to you for further light. As we continue to study the book of Romans, help us to see what Paul was concerned with, what the church at Rome needed to hear, and how that all applies to us as an assembly, worshiping you here in Pine Bush in, uh, in uh, the 21st century. So, so give us light, give us understanding, give us insight. We ask you to bless our fellowship together before we enter into the morning hour, that you would grant us your presence and grace as we worship you this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.